they were paying more than a tithe to follow Jesus. A New York Times article some months ago was titled, Arrests, Beatings, and Prayers Inside the Persecution of India's Christians. The article details the persecution of Christians in parts of India. It, the, 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 uh, the authors, uh, Jeffrey Gentleman and uh, Swasini Raj, write this. In church after church, the very act of worship has become dangerous despite constitutional protections for the freedom of religion. The end of the article focuses on a pastor named Vinod Patil who refuses to stop talking about Jesus but has to operate in secret. Uh, the article writes, he leaves his house quietly and never in a group. He jumps on a small Honda motorbike and he putters past little towns and scratchy wheat fields, Bible tucked inside his jacket pocket. He constantly checks his mirrors to make sure he's not being tailed. Hindu extremists have warned Pastor Patil that they will kill him if they catch him preaching. So last year he shut down his Living Hope Pentecostal church, which he said used to have 400 members and he shifted to small clandestine services, usually at night. One cold winter night, Pastor Patil drove to a secret prayer session in an unmarked farmhouse. He quickly stepped inside. On a dusty carpet that smelled like sheep, two dozen church members waited for him. Most were lower caste farmers. When a dog barked outside, one woman whipped around and asked, what's that? Pastor Patil reassured the woman, that God was watching over them. He cracked open his weathered Hindi language Bible and rested his finger on Luke chapter 21, an apt passage for his beleaguered flock where Jesus says, they will seize you and persecute you. He read with his voice trembling, they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Pastor Patil says, you get this energy just thinking about the name of Jesus. The journalists conclude their article by stating they believe deeply in the teachings of Jesus. When we look at the letter to the Hebrews, written in the first century, it was written, we understand, to Jewish followers of Jesus who had left the temple system with its altar and sacrifices and priests to follow Jesus. And as a result of following Jesus, they had been excluded, kicked out by their families, kicked out by, by employers and colleagues, kicked out of their synagogues. They had lost everything to follow Jesus, and they were being tempted to turn back, not to a kind of liberal, secular vision. That didn't exist in the first century. They were tempted to turn back to an oppressive, conservative, performance-based religious culture that promised them acceptance in this world instead of rejection. And so to these believers, we read, we're going to read Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16, and then we're going to jump forward to chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. This is God's word written to these very tempted believers. All these people were still living by faith when they died. He's talking about the faith Hall of Fame, all these great saints of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, says they did not receive the things promised. 
They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return, but instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And in 13, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. That is, they're trashed. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. What do we see here? We see Jesus calling us to suffer rejection for him. We have to accept the world's rejection in order to follow Jesus. Remember the temptations these Hebrew followers of Christ were facing, and they were significant. And as often the case, persecution can be harshest in cultures with strong religious or ideological underpinnings. That was uh, what these Jewish followers of Jesus were facing. And Jesus was calling them to accept the world's rejection as the cost of following him. He write, we, write here, we read here that the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. The bodies are burned outside the camp because they were unclean. They were taken out. They were trash. They were rejected. They had no place in the city. They had no place in the camp. They had no place. They were rejected. And, and that's how the author of Hebrews describes our relationship to the world's dominant culture. He says, let us then go to Jesus, go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. To follow Jesus, we have to be outsiders. We have to be taken out with the trash. We have to be outside the camp, outside of the city gate. Uh, we have to be carried out and be rejected. Before the judgment of an unbelieving world, we have to be like the carcasses of dead animals, something to be discarded. A couple decades ago, an article listed the degrees of persecution that one could face for practicing one's religious faith, varying greatly based upon when and where you happen to be trying to follow Jesus. You know, in the secular West, it can be easy for us to miss what so much of the world's Christians experience as a daily reality. You know, you can face disapproval. Family members who think you're crazy, employers who don't want you talking about God. Uh, you can, you know, friends that you know if Jesus comes up, you're just going to be waiting for some for the other shoe to drop. You know, it can be disapproval, it can be ridicule, uh, there can be pressure to conform, loss of educational opportunities, economic sanctions, shunning, 
uh, can look like alienation from a community, loss of employment, loss of property, physical abuse, mob violence, harassment by officials, kidnapping, forced labor, imprisonment, physical torture, murder or execution. Uh, you know, I remember talking to um, a guy who actually worshiped with us for a season, well, he attended with us. Uh, he's a, a Mus Muslim from, he was a journalist in Mazari Sharif in Afghanistan, and he had had to flee Afghanistan because the Taliban were threatening to kill him for his reporting on Taliban abuses. And um, he said just the fact that he was attending a Christian church, even though he had not yet professed faith in Christ, he had not been baptized, just the fact that he was attending, if he were to return to his family in Afghanistan, there would first be a huge celebration in which everybody welcomed him back and, and showed him all sorts of love, and he would be celebrated, and about two nights later, he'd be dragged out into the street, or dragged out into the desert and shot as an honor killing in order for his family to say, we have maintained the standards at the cost of our son. For us in the West, Dennis McCallum cautions us about the temptation we face when we don't undergo this intense kind of persecution as a daily reality. He says, in our Western secular culture, rejection, criticism, and scoffing also hurt. But one danger appears in softer rejecting cultures like ours. Believers might conclude that we are close enough to cultural acceptance to make full acceptance a possible goal. Those in countries where persecution is harsh know that there will be no acceptance from the majority culture ever, and so they don't waste time trying to gain it. What are Jesus' followers to do according to the book of Hebrews? The answer remains uncompromising. We must forget about being accepted as Christians, as followers of Jesus, and determine to deliberately bear whatever reproach our culture chooses to throw our way. Again, realize we are the foreigners on the earth. He calls us, it says they admitted they were aliens and strangers on the earth. The Bible says we're a peculiar people. That means followers of Jesus are weird. We're going to do things that nobody else would do. We're going to believe things that people think are cruel or crazy or downright hateful or just bizarre. Because following Jesus, we are going against the flow. We're doing something different from what the surrounding culture is. Whichever surrounding culture you're immersed in. You know, if the followers of Jesus don't experience rejection by a world that rejects Jesus, then something's wrong. Like there's something, we're not being honest with the world about who we are and what our story is and, and what we believe about Jesus. Um, you know, the Hebrew followers of Jesus, they were being tempted to return to Pharisaical Judaism and they could regain friends and family and associates who would have welcomed them back with open arms. All they had to do was make Jesus something of no consequence them. This is a call to radical discipleship where we leave no chips held back, but we, we cash everything into Jesus. You know, um, they were looking for a better country. They weren't going to return, we read. And he says, let us bear the disgrace that Jesus bore being outside the camp, being outside the city, being taken out with the trash. Romans 12 says, stop being conformed to the pattern of this world, but, transformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Apostle James in James 4 says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? 
Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus said, if they abused me, they're going to abuse you. You know, we're weird, we're peculiar, we're aliens and strangers. We are outsiders, we have customs and values that are different. We, we are the Lord's refugees on earth. Wherever on earth we find ourselves, let us therefore go to him, to Jesus, outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore as outsiders. Not trying to gain a moral majority in the world, but being a life-giving minority that everybody thinks is a little crazy, but which holds forth Jesus, the hope of eternal life and the transformation that Jesus brings in our lives when we believe the gospel, the good news that he died for us when we are his enemies. Jesus is telling us to suffer rejection for him because Jesus is building a better city. That's our future expectation. We're longing for a better country, a heavenly one. You know, we're looking for the city that is to come. It's our future expectation that day will come when Jesus will return in glory and he will make everything right. He calls it the renewal of all things. The apostles call it the day when God will make all things new, when, when the Hebrew promise of shalom will come true and God will establish justice and that there will be a universal flourishing of God and humanity and the creation all webbed together in, in justice and, and righteousness and love. That day when that voice will speak from the throne and say, Behold, I make all things new, when he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more sickness, no more suffering, and no more death. The old order will have passed away and the transformation of the cosmos is coming. That's what we're looking forward to, a better country. But, but that better country, that better city, the city of God is already breaking in through the gospel, through the church, breaking in, breaking into this world of seeming meaninglessness and despair and betrayal and death and interjecting into it the hope and the meaning and the goodness and the love of the coming age. Through Jesus, he says, therefore let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and don't forget to to do good and to share with others. The, Hebrew, the, the Greek there is koinonia, uh, which sharing sounds like something Boy Scouts are taught to do. It, it's like a, a, a nice thing. That's not what's pictured here. It's a sharing of our lives together as people of God. Let us, let us live out our lives together with such sacrifices God is pleased. Yes, we may face the world's rejection if we follow Jesus, but that's a rejection we can share and shoulder together with Jesus and with each other as a koinonia. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them. He has prepared is the perfect tense in the Greek, meaning he's already done something that gives us a different present reality. Uh, it, it's, the city is already prepared. He's already prepared it. It's already there in heaven for us now, and it's making itself known, breaking into this world of death and dying with the city's, the heavenly city's life and salvation. Uh, and in light of this reality, which we live out in community, that's where it gets expressed, and in worship, as a worshiping community, bowing down before Jesus. What that makes the church into is what Francis Schaeffer called a pilot plant. Um, you know, in the 20th century, if you were going to 
uh, roll out a line of widgets. You would first build a pilot factory, a small plant, pilot plant that would make a small number of widgets to work out all the kinks and make sure you got it done and, and start to grow that, the, the market for widgets, whatever your widget is. And then once that market started to roll out, you would then start to scale up your manufacturing. You'd build bigger factories and distribution centers so that you can surround the whole world with widgets so that everybody has a widget. And what we're being shown here is a picture of the church as the followers of Jesus together bowing down before him, bowing down before his father and the power of the Holy Spirit, living life in community, sharing our lives with one another and praising God, the triune God with our lips. That is already breaking in the new world. It's the pilot plant, the pilot factory for the kingdom of God, for the heavenly city. And as it's being rolled out and rolled out and more people begin to take part in it, God will build bigger factories. In the coming age, everyone will have salvation who has turned to Jesus Christ and there will be a church from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, a global church worshiping him and welcoming him in the coming age. Let us therefore go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace that he bore. Rejection hurts, but Jesus is building a better city and it's already breaking in through the body of Christ. Disgrace can be humiliating. I know what it's like to be shunned. I know what it's like to be shunned from every angle. How is it possible to accept rejection, whether from the conservative religious right or the unbelieving liberal left, when they all think we're crazy? How is it possible? It's possible, friends, because Jesus went outside the city for us. Jesus was rejected like the carcass of dead animals. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was carried out as trash, suffering outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Jesus went outside the city for us, and that gives us access to the most powerful altar possible, the very person of God the Son, and through him, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. You know, at the altar in Jerusalem was where the people met with God and where they received grace and where they received salvation and forgiveness of sins, where they met with the Lord. And now we're learning that that altar is no longer something made out of, of stone or bronze on a hillside in Jerusalem, but that altar is now the person of Jesus himself, the very person of God an altar from which those who minister at the physical tabernacle have no right to eat because Jesus is this sin offering who has made us right with God fully, finally, and forever because Jesus is that infinite sacrifice offered in our behalf so that we might go free unpunished. Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make his people holy consecrated to God, set apart, literally saints, holy ones. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. It's, it's, it's like the great exchange that Martin Luther spoke of where, where I have violated the command of God continually my entire life, loving God with less than all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, meaning I am continually breaking the greatest commandment, which means that I have spent 50 years, moment by moment, committing the greatest sin of not loving God completely. And so I've got all this guilt and shame. And on the cross, 
Jesus transfers all that guilt and shame to himself, and he carries that burden for me, and, and the Father rejects him. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the Father truly rejecting Jesus so that he will never, ever, ever reject you. And then when you believe in Jesus and surrender your life to him and trust him to be the God he claims to be and the Savior he claims to be and giving you the forgiveness he promises to give when you believe him, the righteousness that Jesus had, having always done the Father's will, having always pleased the Father, all that honor, all that righteousness, all that worthiness has been credited to your account so that you are righteous. And the Father sees you clothed in the righteousness of his Son, and he says, with you I am well pleased. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let me give you even more grace, because in Jesus you are worthy of that, because you have been made holy by the blood of Jesus upon his cross. God is not ashamed to be called your God. Jesus' blood has gained for us the acceptance we never could have had. And Jesus is saying, I want you two to live as an outsider. For some of you, there are things that you're going to have to repent of to follow Jesus. Things you're going to have to change. You're going to have to ask other people into your life to help you change. And to even think through what that will look like. But Jesus is worth it. It's worth it. It's a better city. It's a city of love. It's a city of goodness. It's a city of grace. It's a city of compassion. It's a city, and all who enter the city of God are welcomed fully, finally, and forever. The Father will never reject you. He will never forsake you, no matter what you've done, no matter what you do. He will hold on to you because he loves those who are his, and you are holy in his eyes. You have been made holy through the blood of Jesus, shed for you his righteousness credited to you. Jesus is saying, I want you to suffer rejection for that because I am the gift of God and I am building a better city for you. And I suffered when I went outside the city. And friends, if Jesus is outside the city, then that's, that's where I want to be because he's worth it. Whatever the cost, he is worth it. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. Virginia Prodan was born in communist Romania under the totalitarian dictatorship of Nicolae Ceausescu. It was a place where questioning a government directive could lead to imprisonment, physical torture, and death of all of the Soviet bloc countries. Romania was the most oppressive. The best way to avoid trouble was to stay silent, try to blend in, don't stick out, don't open your mouth. But Vivian became obsessed with finding truth. And after her graduation, she went to law school and she became an attorney. Uh, Virginia writes it this way. She says, one evening, a client came to me to discuss some paperwork, and he just radiated this joy and this peace without thinking. I, I confess, gosh, I wish I had your sense of peace and happiness. And he asked, do you go to church? And I said, yes, on Easter and Christmas, why? Would you like to come with me to my church this Sunday? And so the next Sunday, I actually visited his church. And the pastor read from John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And I could not believe what I was hearing. Someone was claiming to be the truth. And I felt as though the verses were shared specifically for me. And for the first time in my life, everything started to make sense. 
I accepted eventually the pastor's invitation to trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior. And from that moment on, I would dedicate my life to pursuing and speaking the truth no matter the cost. With her newfound faith in Jesus at 23 years old, Virginia as an attorney shifted the work to, shifted her attorney work to focus on human rights, appealing to Romanian laws that should have protected human rights. And that brought her interrogations and beatings by the secret police. She says, I was told in those interrogations that those laws about human rights weren't in the books to protect Romanian freedom of religion or freedom of speech. They were in the law books of Romania for the Western civilization to believe that we have freedom. And yet she proceeded to use those very laws to fight the government anyway. She eventually caught the attention of Western media like Radio Free Europe and the Voice of America. She says, the government had to let me be present at this, otherwise they had to respond to the Westerners asking, where's Virginia? What's the situation? Uh, much of her energy was spent defending fellow followers of Jesus who were facing imprisonment for transporting Bibles across the Romanian border or for sharing about their faith in Jesus or for worshiping privately in their own homes. Many days she walked outside to find that the tires of her car had been slashed. At one point she was kidnapped. She would be bullied. She was pushed into moving traffic. She was beaten by the secret police. She says, I remember being covered with blood, full of pain as many of them were hitting me. I would look straight at them as they were beating me, and I said, I don't like what you are doing, but I want you to know that God loves you, and I choose to love you as well. And these men beating her would have to hide their faces because they would begin crying about what they were doing to her. And through it all, Virginia was winning one religious case after another. However, the greatest test was yet to come. She says, late at night, my legal assistant peeked into my doorway, said, a big man in the waiting room says he wants to discuss a case with you. That's all he will tell me. I let him in. I was taken aback by how enormous he was. And as he sat down in front of my desk, a sneer formed in the corner of his mouth. And slowly, he reached into a shoulder holster drawing out a gun. He aimed his gun at me and he said, you have failed to heed the warnings you've been given. He screamed at me and berated me. Then he said, I came here to finish the matter once and for all. I heard a distinctive click. He said, I am here to kill you. I was alone with my killer and yet I was not. I began silent fervent prayers, calling, recalling all of God's promises to me in his word. His spirit breathed peace into my panicked heart, and then I sensed his message saying, share the gospel. I knew that behind those hate-filled eyes, he had an immortal soul, and he needed to know about the love God has shown us in Jesus. And at once emboldened, I asked him, have you ever asked yourself, why do I exist, or what is the meaning of my life? I looked at the man and I started to share the good news about Jesus dying for sinners so that we could be forgiven. He was just a human being like me, looking for the truth like I was looking for the truth years before. And as I shared the good news, the gospel with him, I noticed, I looked at the man who screamed at me just a few moments ago and I saw him melting under the power of God.
He slid his gun back into the holster. Vivian leaned forward, said, You are here because God put you here, and he has put you to a test. Will you abide in God or in the will of a man, President Ceausescu? His eyes softened. I explained how Hebrews 9 says that we are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. But the good news is that Jesus has prepared a way for every one of us through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but will have eternal life. It is the promise of God to us. As Virginia continued to talk with the man, he appeared more peaceful. And finally he said, you are right. The people who sent me here are crazy. And I do need Jesus Christ. And he promised, I will come to your church as a secret brother in Christ, and I will worship your powerful God. She says, he left my office a freed man. Indeed, he left as a brother in Christ, and our lives will never be the same. She says, he actually did come to church with me, and not as a secret agent, but as a follower of Jesus. And with that, she says, my killer walked away, saved as a brother in Christ. She says he went on and enrolled in a seminary, kept in touch, uh, and, and she said he continued serving God all the days of her life, testifying about how Jesus changed him, freeing him from an enslavement to an unjust social order to instead serve a better city, a city of goodness and justice and love being built by Jesus himself, a city breaking into this age already now through the gospel among his people. Let's pray.